One of my favorite songs is written by a former pastor now um, named Jack Hayford. And he wrote it when he and his wife were in England on vacation. They were there during Queen Elizabeth II's silver anniversary of her coronation. Now, of course, Hayford is an American. I think he's from California. I know that's where he pastored. But he's an American, and so the whole royalty thing was kind of new to him. But he was struck by the celebration and the enthusiasm the people had for the royalty, the, the British people had for their British royalty. He realized that there was a, a deep feeling in the hearts of the British people for the royalty who stood with them in the dark hours and in the, the issues that they had had in their life and in their country. And as he reflected on them on this, he he began to realize that Jesus wants us, his people, to have this kind of sense of loyalty and love and devotion to him because he too is with us in the good times and in the bad times. And as he thought about this, there was one word that really kind of kept coming to his mind, and that word was majesty. Uh, and he said that that word seemed to represent the glory, excellence, grace, and power of Jesus. And he said, by comparison, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's glory seemed quite insignificant. And, and then he told his wife to take notes, and she began to write down these words as he, as he guided her. Majesty. Worship His majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty. Kingdom authority. Flow from His throne unto His own. His anthem raise. So exalt, lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come glorify, Christ Jesus the King. Majesty. Worship. Oh, I lost my place. Majesty. Worship His Majesty. Jesus who died, now glorified, King of all kings. The psalm we're going to look at tonight is a, a psalm kind of like this. It is a psalm that encourages us to recognize and worship Jesus for His Majesty. So open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Psalm chapter 8. Uh, it should be on page 417 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth, who has set Thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings Thou hast ordained strength because of Thine enemies. Thou, that thou mightest still the enemy of the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? Thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth. The title of the message tonight is The Majesty of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We are thankful for the opportunity we have to gather and to study Your Word. As we come tonight, help us to lay aside these few minutes we have and, and really just be focused upon You. Lord, as we look at Your Word and what it tells us about who you are and what you're like. It reveals your majesty. Let your spirit open the eyes of our understanding that we would come to know you better. We would love you more. We would recognize in a greater way how wonderful, how great, how awesome, how worthy you truly are. And let this, Father, affect us deeply. Lord, we don't want 
to be like the people of Isaiah's day who who worshipped you with our mouths, but our hearts were far from you. Father, we want our hearts and our minds and our mouths to all be engaged. We want to worship you because you're worthy. We want to give you the glory. Do your name. We want to live lives that testify to a lost and a dying world. Our God is great and our God is awesome and our God is worthy of whatsoever we do for him and in his name. So tonight, let your spirit come and let him give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let him anoint me so the words would would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and your power. So our faith, our our hope is not built upon any eloquent word I may speak, but upon your power, your greatness, your goodness, who you are and what you're like. Have your way in our hearts and our lives. Be glorified tonight. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, obviously, Psalm 8 is a, a psalm of worship. As David looks at these various truths about God, he recognizes the greatness, the glory, and the majesty of God. And, and it leads him to worship God. And it's really the same for us. Recognizing the, the greatness, glory, and majesty of God should have the same impact upon us. God's greatness, glory, and majesty should motivate us to worship Him. Right? God's greatness, glory, and majesty should motivate us to worship Him. Now this psalm, the way David tells this, there are three ways God's majesty is demonstrated in this psalm. The first is God's name reveals His glory. Right? God's name reveals His glory. Verse 1, David says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name on all the earth, who has set Thy glory... Above the heavens. Now the exaltation of, of God's name stands as bookends on this psalm. Because if you look at verse 9, it ends the way it begins. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now the word excellent means mighty, majestic, or magnificent. David says the excellence or majesty of God's name is greater than the majesty of the heavens themselves. Now as we look at statements like this, we, we probably don't think much about names. Because names aren't quite as significant for us as they were in Bible times. But when we look at names in the Bible, particularly God's names in the Bible, they all have meaning. They're not just words that are thrown together. The, the names of God, that, which are given to us in Scripture, they all reveal to us something about the character, the nature, and the actions of God. They, they reveal to us who our God is, what our God is like, and what and the ways our God acts. In the world. So all of these, they reveal the glory, the majesty, and the greatness of God. The names of God is more majestic than the heavens because His name tells us who He is, what He's like, and how He acts. Now, if you notice at the very first, O Lord, our Lord, there are two different words for Lord which are used in verse 1. And in verse 9. Now, this may, may or may not, depending on what English translation you have, it may not be immediately obvious. If you have like the familiar King James, it has the, the Lord, the first Lord is in all caps, and then the other Lord is just capital L, and the rest of it is not capitalized. But those are two different Hebrew words used for God throughout the Bible. The first word, the, the all caps Lord, is the, the word Yahweh. It is the God's personal name or God's 
covenant name. It is the name God gave to Moses at the burning bush. When God wanted to reaffirm to his people, he was their God. He was their covenant God. This is the name God would use. The other word for Lord is Adonai. And Adonai basically means sovereign ruler or master over creation. And this stresses God's dominion. That God is, in fact, the ruler over all. He is the sovereign Lord over all of creation and over all of the world. Now, before we get into some about God's name, I, there's just an aside here that, that I think is important to notice. Notice the way David words this, O Lord, our Lord. Right? He, there's a definite relationship between God and His people. David is bringing out in this statement. David essentially says in verse 1 and in verse 9, Yahweh is our king. Now this isn't a main point in the direction I'm going to go in the message tonight. But I do want us to think about this. Because that's the idea. If, if As we read this, that's what we're saying as well. Yahweh is my king. Just think about that. If, if we understood, if, if our king... If our sovereign, if our ruler was Yahweh himself, how would that be lived out in our lives? I mean, we know that. But I think what we often do is we think of it maybe in God is the ruler over all, but we don't personalize it. He is my ruler. And so if we really took time to think and, and, and recognize that Yahweh, the creator, the ruler, he is not just the, the king in a way, the president is the president over a nation, but has no real personal connection to the average person. But he is our, your personal king, my king, our church, he is the king over our church. If we thought about that often, really thought about it, meditated upon it, let it sink beyond our minds and down into our hearts, what difference would it make in our lives, in our actions, in our reactions, in our values and our priorities? What difference would it make in what we stress about and what we prioritize in our life? What, what difference would it make in, in how we live and how we act and what we do? What kind of comfort and encouragement would that give us in our day-to-day lives? I believe things like this are what we ought to meditate upon frequently. I'm trying, and again, I'm getting off. This isn't part of my sermon, so it doesn't count. The time kind of freezes. But, but I'm trying to, my mind, I don't know how your mind is. My mind is always active. I, I don't have a still mind. I, my mind is always thinking about something. And so even if I'm just staring off into space, the wheels are turning and something is going on. And I'm trying to focus that into something productive and to to focus on meditating upon scripture or upon an attribute of God or upon the cross or, or something that will make that time where it won't ramp up my anxiety. Or it won't ramp up my anger or, or it won't make me frustrated or, or it won't. Just be a wasted time. And I find that that is ridiculously hard to do. I I can spend hours on YouTube watching whatever. I can spend hours 
thinking about a book I read when I was 12 about the dragons and the and the wizards and all of the stuff that went along with that. But to sit and just think about Yahweh is my king, it, it is hard. Or, or to think about a passage, one verse, I'm trying to memorize a verse and, and meditate upon that. And I find it so very hard to focus my thoughts on things that are good and productive. And this is an idea that we could, and, and maybe you're like that, maybe you you feel the same way. What difference would it make in our lives if in those times where our mind was just, rather than let it roaming to the news or social media or some book we read 20 years ago or some YouTube video we've seen, we focused on Yahweh is my king. The Lord is my Lord. What difference would something like that make in our hearts, in our minds, and in our day-to-day lives. Now, again, that was just kind of extra. Back to the idea of God's name revealing His glory. What we often find in God's Word is God's name, Yahweh, is often paired with another word to demonstrate a, a part of the way God acts in the world, things God does for His people. But, and, and this is kind of neat because... When, we, when, God's, when Yahweh is paired with these, it is a covenant promise. It's so, sort of what we should see it as. So this isn't necessarily God does this for everyone, everywhere, all the time. No, no, this is Yahweh, the covenant God, has made this sort of covenant promise with His covenant people, which in the New Testament, that is believers in Jesus Christ. If we have repented of our sins and believed upon Jesus Christ, we have been grafted in, and we are part of the covenant promises of God. So, like, uh, of course, probably more familiar with the idea of Jehovah, but Yahweh is the, the more correct way. Yahweh Jireh, or Jehovah Jireh. This means the Lord will provide. The, the, the first time we see this used is when God provided the ram in place of Isaac. For Abraham's sacrifice. Now, again, we don't have time to get into all that goes into these stories. What a great story that is, right? God has told Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and go to a mountain I will show you and offer him to me as a sacrifice. Abraham gets up the next morning. I mean, there's no hesitation. He gets up and he moves out and he brings his men and the wood and the knife and the fire and they... Go to the base of the mountain. God shows them. He and Isaac head out and he gives Isaac the wood and he keeps the fire. And they walk up the hill and, and Isaac asks him. This is the part that always gets me. Isaac asks him, Dad, we have the fire. We have the wood. We have the knife. Where's the lamb? Can you imagine how that must have gutted Abraham? But Abraham says, God himself will provide a lamb for they get up there and he gets ready to make the sacrifice. He raises the knife over his head and, and God cries out, Abraham, Abraham. And there's a, a ram caught in the thicket. And he takes it and he is able to sacrifice that and the Lord will provide. It's just this picture of, of in crisis moments, when we are doing God's will, we have devoted ourselves to him and we're doing what he wants us to do. 
God is there. God will provide. How wonderful. How wonderful is that? How How many of us have experienced that? I mean, if we were to go around the room and and talk about times God has has come through in that crunch moment like that, that crisis moment that, that God was there and God provided, we had experienced. I mean, God's name is glorious. God's name reveals His glory. Or Yahweh Nissi. Uh, and this name means the Lord is my banner. Now we first see this name used when God protected Israel by defeating the Amalekites in Exodus 17. When armies went to war, they carried a banner. And the banner declared who their king was. In some cases, the banner itself would be enough to avert war. Because if somebody's king was powerful enough, and somebody's king was mighty enough, the other army would give up, they would surrender, they would flee, because nobody wants to mess with that king. And so the picture is the idea that as disciples of Jesus, the Lord's name, His name is on the banner over us. So as we move forward in our mission for Jesus, doing His will, we're not going it alone. We're not, we're, we're not even really, as we try to reach our community, we're not even going under the banner of Free Will Baptist. We're going under the banner of, of Jehovah. We're going under the banner of Yahweh. He is our banner and the enemy of our souls. When He comes against our church or He comes against our life, He knows who our King is. And it gives Him pause before He thinks to attack because He knows who our King is. And he knows what our king can do. Another one is Yahweh Shalom. And, and the phrase means the Lord is my peace. And the name given, the name Gideon gave the altar he built to the Lord in, in Ophrah in Judges 6.24. And it can also mean that the Lord is my peace or the peace of Yahweh. God is both the giver of of our peace and the one who who is our peace. I can't think about that. In in our day, what a precious commodity peace is, right? And so what we have in our covenant relationship with God is a, a promise that He will give us peace and He Himself will be our peace. And then Yahweh Shama. The phrase expresses the truth. The Lord is there. This name was referring to a city which the prophet Ezekiel saw in his vision in in Ezekiel 48 and 35. John Wesley said every true believer who may, wherever he is in his way of duty, still write Jehovah Shema. My God is here. I can't think about that. Covenant promise of our God. It's wherever we go and whatever we do in our time and our service to Him and our goings about, our God is there. Now, again, I don't have time to get into all this kind of stuff, but this isn't just the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. We know that. But this is more than that. This isn't just the fact that God is everywhere. This is the fact that God is everywhere, but He is specifically with you. He is specifically with me. 
in a in a covenant relationship kind of way. A, a, a crude illustration of this would be when you go to Walmart with your spouse. You go to Walmart, there's tons of people who are there with you, but they're not really with you, are they? They're just there, but your spouse, your spouse is with you in a special way because they're with you. And that's kind of the picture here. Yes, God is everywhere. But there is a special way he's with his covenant people who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. And that is a promise we take no matter where we go or what goes on. Yahweh Shema, my God is here. And then Yahweh, and I know I can't pronounce this right, Seboeth. You know you can't, none of us can pronounce this right because when we sing the song by Martin Luther, we all kind of stutter when it gets to that particular part of the song. Uh, the name means the Lord of hosts. Seboeth simply means host or host, but with special reference to warfare. The Lord of hosts means God is the commander of the armies of heaven, the one who fights and wins battles. We cannot. God is our defender. Think about the battles we face, the issues we deal with. How many times has God just protected us? How many times have we read in Chronicles where God said, the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. And just comfort in that. To know and to have experienced it. Again, we could go through all of these we could all give testimonies of times our God had been this for us. Our God had done this for us. There are many, many more names of God given in his word. But no matter how many we looked at, each of us would do the same thing. Each one would do the same thing. It would reveal something of the character and the actions and the nature of God. And as we looked at what God was and what God had done and how we had experienced that. The natural response from us should be to worship. Worship the great God who has chosen to provide not again, not just us, us, me, you, not just the God who is everywhere, but the God who is here with us. I mean, when we understand who God is, what God is like, when we look at the names of God given in Scripture, we, we should just be awed by that. As we think about the times He has been those things for us. Recognizing the greatness, glory, and majesty of God as revealed in His name should absolutely lead us to worship Him. Secondly, God's sufficiency reveals His glory. Verse 2, it says, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. Thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. The idea here is God using weak things, babes and sucklings, to accomplish His will in the world. To give strength and to still the enemy. But what David is telling us is God has the necessary strength 
God has the necessary strength to silence his enemies. The point of this, or he used, God has the necessary strength to do whatever he wants to, but God can use the, the weakest of humans to accomplish his will in the world. The point of this is to demonstrate the greatness, the majesty, and the sufficiency of God. God does not need the might of armies to silence his enemies. God can use the mouth of babes and sucklings to do this. God doesn't need strong armies to stop the avenger. God can use something as small and as frail as the mouth of a babe, the mouth of a suckling. God's might, majesty and sufficiency as such, he can use the weakest of things to accomplish anything he wants to be accomplished. Now we see this really all throughout Scripture in various ways. Think about the time like Samson fought thousands of Philistines and killed them with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, that's not even really a weapon. But God gave him the strength. God made him sufficient. Well, think about David going against a giant with a slingshot. Now, Let's not let's be clear. The slingshot was a mighty weapon in that day. It truly was. The slingers who did that were very important. But a slinger with five smooth stones typically wasn't much against a giant in battle. They, the, the slingers weren't the champions, but Goliath was. And God used David and his five stones to bring down a mighty warrior. Or in the book of Joshua, which we just came through not long ago, God used hailstones and hornets to destroy the five kings of the Amorites. God used one serving of flour and one serving of oil to feed a widow woman, her son and the prophet Elijah for many days. God is sufficient. And, and this is, again, this is an incredible thing. We see this teaching in the New Testament as well. The Apostle Paul says that, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound those which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to pass the things which are. God intentionally uses small, weak Things to accomplish his will in the world. I mean, that's the point. That this isn't that this this is such a great passage because the picture here isn't God used used hornets and hailstones because that's all he had. It wasn't that God had to use Samson and the jawbone, and that's all there was. No, God intentionally chose to use small things. God intentionally chose to use foolish things and weak things. Things the world would say that's dumb. That's not real. That can't happen. There's no way you can fight an army like that. God intentionally did that. And that's the way He still works. God intentionally chooses weak and flawed and frail things to shame the strong, to shame the mighty, things the world despises, God exalts. And we might wonder why. Why does God do this? 
Well, the next verse tells us that no flesh should glory in his presence. The reason God uses weak things to demonstrate, uses weak things is to demonstrate his greatness and his majesty. When God uses the weak things to accomplish his will, all of the glory and all of the praise go to him. You know, God's word has a lot to say about pride and self-righteousness and self sort of self-sufficiency. And one of the key ideas is those things are destructive to us. They are dangerous to our lives. These attitudes are destructive because they attempt to steal from God what rightfully belongs to him, his glory. And, and, And God has said in Isaiah, he will not share his glory with another. And he won't share his glory with me. And he won't share his glory with you. And he won't share his glory with our church or our denomination. God wants to be the one who gets all the glory because God is the one who deserves it. And so pride and self-sufficiency and self-righteousness, when the proud and the self-righteous and the self-sufficient do things, they say, "Woo! look at what I've done. Look at what I accomplished. And it leads to the exaltation of self that's trying to steal the glory of God. And, and he will have none of that. In fact, God at times in his word intentionally weakens his people. So they will have to acknowledge the glory belongs to him. Think about Gideon's army from the book of Judges. They're going against the enemy, and they raise about 30,000 men. But at this point, they're still vastly outnumbered. But 30,000, that's a big army. And God knows if 30,000 defeat the army that's there, the 30,000 will say, the odds were against us, but we're awesome. And so we did it. And so God sends Gideon on a process of whittling down his troops from 30,000 to 300 And the reason for it was because while 30,000 men had very small chances of winning the battle, 300 had exactly none. And when the battle was over and when they had won, all 300 men would have to say, God gave us this victory. Now with this is is something that is, is encouraging as well as leading us to worship. Do you know there is something freeing about believing this? The sufficiency of God to do what he wants done. God is sufficient, so guess who doesn't have to be to do his will? You and I. God is awesome. So guess who doesn't have to be awesome to do God's will? You or I. God is extraordinary, so guess who could be ordinary? And seek to do His will. You and I. God is perfect. So guess who can be flawed. And still do God's will. You and I. God is sufficient. So guess who can look at the task set before us. And say I am insufficient. For such a task. And still be used to do God's will. You or I. This is kind of the point. 1 Corinthians, the idea in Psalm 2. Whatever God wants us to do is always beyond our comfort zone. 
I mean, this is just without question. There is none of us where God's will for our life is for us to sit in our comfortable chair and do what only we can do in our natural strength and do what is easy and do what is comfortable and do what we always do. There's none of us. That is not God's will. Because why? We don't need God for that life. We don't need God to sit in our comfortable chair. We don't need God to do what's easy and what's comfortable and what we've always done. But what we need God for is to do what's hard. What we need God for is to get out of our comfort zone. What we need God for is to do things that scare us. And God organizes our life so we will always be aware we need Him. Make no mistake, God will never give us a life where we do not need Him in our day-to-day life. But God calls us out. And God shows He is sufficient. And shows He can do what we could not even ask or imagine. And when He does. There is zero temptation from us to say, look at what I have done. Instead, we have to give all the praise and all the glory to the God who deserves it. Look at what God has done. And it is a revelation of God's greatness and his glory and his majesty and his sufficiency And it should just naturally lead us to worship Him. To be in awe of Him. And then finally, God's care reveals His glory. God's name reveals His glory. God's sufficiency reveals His glory. And God's care. I love this last part. Verse 3 and 4 is so good. For when I consider the heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars... Thou hast ordained which thou hast created. What is man? Thou art mindful of him and the son of man. Thou visitest him. I I couldn't tell you the number of times I feel this way in my own life. I mean, David, I think you could almost picture him out in the field as a shepherd boy. Keeping the sheep and looking up at the stars. And just... I mean, you've been out on nights where it was just clear and you could see and it was just awesome. The beauty of nature and the sky and I mean, all of the things that go with it and you look up at it and and you can't help but sometimes when you look at things like that, you, you can't help but feel insignificant in comparison. I mean, you, you, you can't go to the Grand Canyon and look at that and think, man, I'm great. You can't stare up into a starry sky on a mountainside and and look at the mountain and the trees and hear the nature and see the sky and go, wow, I'm wonderful. You just go, I'm so small. I'm so insignificant. And that's kind of, I think, the picture here. David is seeing that. And he wonders, in light of, of all of this, what am I? Who are we? That you would be mindful of us. And you would visit us. That you would 
pay us any attention at all. Why would the God who speaks the stars and knows them by name, controls the oceans and raises up the mountains, why would He care? Not Again, not just about humanity in general, but us, you, me, as individuals. Why would He get involved? Why would He hear our prayers? Why would He care? Well, David goes on with this thought. And he, he mentions in verse 5 that the dignity and the honor God has given to humanity. For thou, God, has made them a little lower than the angels and has crowned them with glory and honor. Now, this is, this is really one of the great truths of, of Scripture which distinguishes between evolution and creation. But evolution bestows no really great dignity and honor upon humanity. According to evolution, we are all just above the monkeys. Just above, just slightly evolved above them. We are little more than hairless talking apes. But according to the Bible, according to God and His Word, we are not just above the apes. We are just below the angels. And we are image bearers of Almighty God. We have been given dominion over the earth and over the works of His hands. He has put all things under our feet. After God created Adam and Eve, He told them to fill the earth, to subdue it. They told them they had dominion. Humanity has dominion over the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea. This gives humans an exalted position over the earth, but under the God of heaven. And all of this over the the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the fowl, all of this is meant to emphasize David's astonishment at God's care and God's concern for humanity. If we're not careful, we will miss this because we, we are, we do wrestle with pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Often we look at ourselves, at at humanity, and we say, why shouldn't we be elevated? We are wonderful. Why wouldn't God look down upon us with His smile and His favor? And we forget. God created humans to love Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, and obey Him. And yet... Humanity has chosen to reject and rebel against God. Rather than submit to His plan for their life, humanity said, no. We'll, we'll do our own thing. We'll go our own way. And it wasn't Adam and Eve started the trend, but, but they're not the only ones. Sure, we were born with, with what Grandma Ross would call the old Adamic nature. And, and we were prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But but here's the reality of even that song. Prone doesn't mean do. Prone means I feel the pull. 
We have not only felt the pull, we have done it. We have rebelled. We have rejected. We have seen what God has said in His Word about thou shalt and thou shalt not. And we said, I will do as I will do. But God, the great God, He could have rightly said, have it your way then. Go on without me. I'll leave the earth to you and the destruction of course, we get to Genesis what, 5 and 6 where God sends Noah who's going to do the ark. How has the world gotten at that point where God is sort of allowing them to have their own way? But God doesn't just allow people to go their own way. He seeks them out. I mean, even, even like the story of Cain and Abel. They offer sacrifices. Cain's is rejected. Abel's is received. Cain is furious at God. And God, God, think about this. God goes to Cain personally and says, why are you angry? You know if you do what's right, I'll accept you. Think about that. The God who who had just years before spoke everything into existence condescended to come to a man who was angry at him and say, why are you mad at me? And all the rest of Scripture, we see God doing similar things. People rebel and God pursues. God creates a nation. And they're supposed to be devoted to Him. They, they take a covenant relationship with Him. And they say, we will do these things. And then they don't. But rather than just... Curse them as the law, as they had agreed. I mean, they made an agreement. If we do this, you'll bless us. And if we don't do this, you will curse us. We understand. We accept the terms. And they didn't do the do's. And they did do the don'ts. And, and God had every right to pour out His anger and His wrath on them. Instead, He sent prophets. And He sent judges. And He sent people to turn them and to say, Don't do this thing which I hate. Come back to Me and I will forgive you. And all of the Old Testament is not a picture of this angry God looking for an opportunity to smite these poor, innocent people. It is a loving God reaching out to a rebellious people who will say they have nothing to do with Him. And He continues to call them. And He does this all through the Old Testament. And He comes to the New Testament and not only is He now patient and kind and calling to them through prophets, He comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And He comes as one of us. And as as a person, He says, follow Me. Come to Me. And, And He does all of these wonderful things. And He teaches all of these wonderful teachings. And And yet, humans are still humans. And they reject, and they rebel, and they'll have none of Him in their life. And they murder Him. They conspire to have Him murdered by the Romans in a brutal, horrific death. But God knew that was coming. God, that was the point. And despite... The rebellion that that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus cries out, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
He rises from the dead. He, he pours out the Holy Spirit, which, which contends with us, which wells on us. He gives us His Word, which calls to us. He sends preachers and prophets and people to witness to us. And He is doing all of this to a rebellious people. A people who say, I, I, I don't want that God to rule over my life. Of course, that's just the bare bones of the, the realm of redemption. That doesn't take into consideration him inviting us to cast all of our cares upon him. For he cares for us. I mean, gosh, think about that. We, you and I, have rebelled. We have. And he called to us. And we came. Praise the Lord. We came. But doesn't honesty compel us that even after we came, we have rebelled and rejected his way. And yet he still says, you cast all of your cares upon me. I care for you. He put his Holy Spirit within us to empower us to serve him, to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things the Holy Spirit will produce within us. He, he gives us His Word. What a precious treasure this book is. People all over the world wonder, what is God like? We know. Does God care about me? We, we know. What does God want for me or from me? We know. We, I mean, what? What a treasure. What a treasure. God has given us in this book. There are so many things God does to take care of us despite the fact we have sinned against Him. We have rebelled against Him. We have rejected His will for our lives. And, and as I have gotten older and become more aware of my sinful depravity, my bent to sinning. I have just been awed by God's care and God's concern over my life. God's blessed me far beyond my character, far beyond anything I could ever possibly deserve or earn in my life. And there are just times where I'm so in awe. I mean, I'm just so aware of how good God has been to me. I, I have nothing I can do but just sort of bow my head and, and worship Him. Often just with sobbing and tears because I, I don't have the words to express how wonderful and how great my God is. We must not cease to be amazed at God's care and God's concern and God's provision for our lives. Because when we do, we lose the wonder of God. We, we miss the greatness, the glory and the majesty of God. We'll not be moved to worship. Like David, we, we should just at times... Personalize this. 
Who am I that you would care and do such wonderful things to me? And when we are awed like that, we have an understanding of the greatness, the glory, and the majesty of God, and and we will just naturally worship Him. Our God is wonderful. And amazing. And, and one of my prayers for our church this year is we will just be awed by God. That we will just, it's almost like everything will be made new. You know, most of us have, how, how many of us have read the Bible through at least once in our life? Right? Isn't it easy to let these wonderful truths become so familiar we skim them. I remember, and I don't have time for this. Kelly's going to tell me later, don't say you don't have time for it if you're going to take time for it. But but I remember when I first started reading the Bible. I, I grew up in church, but I, I don't guess I ever paid attention. I knew who David was. He had fought Goliath. I knew who Jesus was. He died on the cross and rose again. But, I mean, that's... Probably about the extent of my knowledge. And I remember that first time I was reading the Bible through. It was the year Caitlin was born. It was the first year I had ever read the Bible through. Everything was so new. Everything, it was just like, oh my goodness. And I would be like, tell my dad, have you ever read this? This is amazing. And I want, I want that again. I can remember just sitting in church and singing songs, hymns that we had sang, and just being almost overwhelmed with how much God loved me. For me, I want that again. For us, I want that again. That we would be awed by God. If we would understand, if we would meditate and just recognize constantly the greatness, the glory, and the majesty of God... This would be a huge step towards this because it would just lead us to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. You are wonderful, more wonderful than our minds can comprehend. You are good, so much more good than we understand. Oh God, renew our sense of wonder at who you are and what you've done. Father, there is at times a need for you to to make us so aware of our sin and our depravity, not to beat us down, not to condemn us, but so we can be amazed at you, at your greatness, at your goodness, at your love for us. Do this in our lives. Renew our sense of wonder at you as we read our Bibles this year. Father, let it be like it's the very first time we're reading it. I mean, let it be just fresh and almost brand new as we gather together. Let us just be in awe of what a privilege we have to gather together in your house with your people to worship you. As we sing songs, let their words just wash over us and let our Our awareness of your presence in our worship gathering just lead us to be amazed. Make us a people who are in awe of you, O God. We ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. All right, we're dismissed.